Well, Christmas Day 1996. That was the Christmas where I really felt like I was waiting. I was longing for it. For weeks beforehand, I could hardly contain myself. I was nine. I reckon probably the prime age for Christmas. I'd I'd written multiple letters to Santa. I'd worn out the Argos catalogue from leafing through it. I'd dreamed about the big day. Would everything I was waiting for be fulfilled? Well, I woke up on Christmas morning and it had snowed. It was a white Christmas. And when my brothers and I went downstairs, we could not believe our eyes. I'm still not quite sure why or how, but my mum and dad had bought us two main presents that year. It was all we'd been waiting for and more. On one side of the lounge was a bright green, perfectly ironed, fully kitted out Subutio set. Subutio was a football game, a little bit like FIFA, just with no PlayStation or Xbox. You flicked little footballers against a ball that was twice as big as them and tried to beat your brother mercilessly. At least that's what we did in our house. But that wasn't all. On the other side of the lounge was a Skelectric track. I really don't know what my mum and dad were thinking. Two remote control cars sitting on the starting line, ready to let off that wonderful smell of smoke and burning. It was everything a little nine-year-old boy had been waiting for. Well, after being peeled off the ceiling, uh, my brother and I jumped onto Skelectrix. The the cars zoomed off down the long straight, round the bend, under the bridge, back round the hairpin. Uh, But then we realised that the cars were slowing down. Down the straight, round the last corner. And by this time, the cars were crawling. And they both crossed the finish line, looking very sorry for themselves. What we didn't realise at the time was that the night before, my dad had invited all of his cousins over. And between them, they'd completed a full Grand Prix season on our Christmas presents, and they'd burnt out our cars. One lap was all we got that Christmas day. But all was not lost. We still had Subutio. But as anyone who's ever played Subutio will tell you, it doesn't take long before someone accidentally stands on the Star Striker. Uh, To be honest, Sabutio was never actually as good as you thought it would be before you got it. Thank goodness FIFA eventually came along. Uh, Very soon we were down to playing five-a-side with a crumpled up piece of wrapping paper because, of course, we lost the ball. Uh, Christmas Day, 1996. I'd waited for it for months. Was it worth waiting for? No. Not really, certainly not to the extent that I had been waiting for it. And we all know, don't we, uh, that Christmas is never really worth waiting for in the way that we wait for it, is it? And maybe that this year, uh, that's been intensified more than any other. If a normal Christmas is never really worth waiting for, uh, not by the time Uncle John has caused another family argument, or or your cousin has said that the turkey is even drier than usual, Uh, but a a COVID Christmas, will that be worth waiting for? With restrictions, Zoom calls, empty seats? 
So maybe you think not. Maybe you've already decided that you're not going to be waiting for Christmas. Maybe you're waiting for the vaccine. Or maybe you're waiting for spring, the new dawn. Well, this morning is the start of our Advent series. And we'll be spending three weeks looking at Matthew chapter 1 and chapter 2. And Advent is all about waiting. Advent means coming. John's already talked about this. He's coming. We're waiting for the coming of Jesus. And this morning we'll see that the wait for the birth of Jesus lasted a lot longer than just 24 days. The wait for Jesus lasted for thousands of years. But the question is, would that first Christmas be worth the wait? Would the coming of Jesus be worth waiting for? Matthew chapter 1 verse 1 is the very first verse of this gospel. It was written by Matthew, one of Jesus' 12 disciples, an eyewitness of his life, death, and resurrection. And this first verse is actually more like a heading, like a title for chapters 1 and 2. Let me read Matthew 1 verse 1 again. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. We're going to spend our time this morning unpacking that verse because that's what Matthew will spend these next two chapters explaining. The coming of the one we've been waiting for. So, firstly, we see that Jesus is the focus because he is the saviour. We see that as Matthew tells us, this is the genealogy of Jesus It's clear who Matthew's going to tell us about. Jesus, that's who he's going to focus on. Matthew's about to mention a a long list of nearly 50 names. But the focus is on only one of them. The rest are, in a sense, incidental. This is the genealogy or the record, the story of Jesus' beginnings. That's where the list starts. And that's where the list ends in in verse 16. The last name is Jesus. He's the end point, the climax of the story. Jesus was a real man. He was really born. As a baby, he cried. He drank milk. He kept Mary and Joseph up at night. This is the true story of the real birth of an actual baby. If, if you don't believe that, uh, then please come along to our Zoom event on Wednesday. It's called Is the Nativity Nonsense? And on Wednesday evening, Peter Williams, a widely respected scholar, will show us that the nativity story is true. You can find more details on our website. Uh, Jesus was real, uh, but he wasn't ordinary. He was born as a baby, uh, but he wasn't just any baby. And I don't mean in the same way that any baby thinks their, any parent thinks their baby is special. We've all been in that situation, haven't we? Uh, Where a a new parent asks us if we'd like to see a photograph of their newborn. And when we see the photo, we, we try and stop ourselves from recoiling. And all we can think of is Mr. Potato Head. Oh, lovely, we think. What a very unique child you've got. 
Uh, No, Uh, Jesus was truly special. Uh, We'll find out in the coming weeks that he was God. Uh, But here, in the very first name, in the very name of Jesus, we see something special about him. Uh, You see, the name Jesus is from the Hebrew name Joshua. And the name Joshua means the Lord is salvation. But for Jesus, that's not just a trivia question. It's a reality. You see, in Matthew 1 verse 21, a verse that we'll look at next week, the angel will say to Joseph, she, that's Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. Any baby born in Israel at that time could have been called Jesus. But the meaning of this baby's name is also the goal of his birth. He was born to be a savior from sin. And we see in the rest of this passage why that's necessary. Because sin is when people reject God as king. And instead, they crown themselves. They coronate themselves with the right to decide to do whatever they want. And they ignore any and all of God's laws. That is sin. Rejecting God's way and instead going our own way. And all the other names in this passage except Jesus are the names of sinful people. For those original readers of Matthew's gospel, they would have seen this cast of characters from the Old Testament and they would have immediately known that. Here's just a few examples. Jacob, he's third on the list. You can find him in verse two. Jacob was a pathological liar. He deceived everyone he could. His father, his brother, his father-in-law. He caused family rifts wherever he went. He was a sinner. In verse 5, you'll find the name Rahab. Rahab was a prostitute. In verses 7 to 10, you see a list there of Israel's kings. Now, they were an incredibly mixed bunch. Many of them, the Bible describes outrightly as evil kings. They were all sinners. And the the culmination of all of the sin in this list, we see it in Matthew chapter 1 verse 11. The exile, that was the punishment that God brought on Israel about 600 years before Jesus was born. They were conquered by and transported to Babylon as a punishment for their rejection of God as their king for their sin. The people in Jesus' family tree were all sinners. But Jesus, the Savior, came to save people from their sins. Firstly, Jesus is the focus. He is the Savior. Secondly, Matthew says, Jesus is the Messiah He fulfills God's promises. Uh, Look again at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, 
the Messiah. You may have heard Jesus called Jesus Christ. Well, Christ was not his surname. It is title. Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah. We still use the term Messiah, don't we? How many Messiah figures have we heard of in the football world? They seem to be particularly prevalent at Newcastle United. They're always on the lookout for the Geordie Messiah. It doesn't sound like a particularly appealing term. But we use the word Messiah to mean saviour. Someone who's going to turn things around. The two terms are very closely linked. Messiah is another Hebrew word. It means anointed. And in the Old Testament, there were two roles that necessitated anointing. Someone who was becoming the high priest and someone who is becoming the king. They were both anointed, an initiation that showed that they were giving authority to fulfill the role they were about to begin. Uh, Throughout the Old Testament, there are an ever-increasing and expanding range of prophecies that give rise to the hope of a Messiah, an anointed one who would be sent by God to be a king, someone who would represent the people and start a new reign of great blessing in Israel. These seeds started to be sown in promises made to some of the main characters in Jesus' genealogy. Uh, To Abraham, uh, back in Genesis 12 and 15 and 22. And also to David in 2 Samuel 7. Uh, Prophets uh, like Isaiah gave further rise to the hope that a Messiah would come. And in the first century A.D., When Jesus was born, uh, there were high messianic expectations among Jews. And here, Matthew clearly states that Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, The waiting is over. He has come. We see that in verse 17, don't we? Uh, Matthew orders the genealogy for us. Uh, From Abraham to David to the exile to the Messiah, the anointed one that we've been waiting for. That's part of the reason why Matthew metronomically takes us through a tour of the Old Testament from Abraham in Genesis 12 all the way through, bit by bit, till we get to Matthew chapter 1. He does that because every promise of God is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus the Messiah fulfills God's promises. Thirdly, Matthew says, Jesus is the son of David. He is Israel's king. Look again at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. If Jesus is the climax of this genealogy, Uh, then David is the hinge. Uh, The first section leads up to King David. Uh, The second section uh, leads away from David. And the third section brings us to Jesus, the son of David. Uh, David was Israel's second king, and David was Israel's best king. 
He is described as a, a man after God's own heart. He, he wasn't sinless, not even nearly, but he was a good king. He was the high point of the Israelite monarchy. And Matthew is absolutely stating that Jesus is a descendant of David. He is in David's royal line. In verses 7 to 11, they're all kings. But the crown was lost at the exile. After that, the monarchy was in eclipse. But Matthew shows us that while there may not have been a crowned king, the line of succession continued. And the rightful inheritor of the throne is Jesus. Many times throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew reports people calling Jesus the son of David. He couldn't be more clear. Jesus is Israel's true king. By calling Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, in tandem, Matthew is claiming something huge about Jesus. I've already mentioned a couple of the promises God made in the Old Testament. They're called covenants, promises that God voluntarily entered into in order to make relationship with his people. Let me read a few verses from 2 Samuel 7. This is the covenant that God made with David. God said this, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever this is where the two collide. Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised king who will bring a new and better reign to Israel. And he's also the son of David, the one whose kingdom will last forever. Well, up to now, you might be thinking that's, that's all very well. <laughs> And that might be particularly interesting for a, for a first century Jew to get excited about. Uh, but what about me? Why, why would we, in the 21st century, be excited to wait for the celebration of the birth of Jesus? Uh, well, finally, Jesus is the son of Abraham. He is for all nations. Again, do you see that in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This is the final designation Matthew gives to Jesus. Abraham was the founding father of the nation of Israel, the patriarch. And God made a covenant with Abraham too. God made the promise that Abraham would father a nation. He would have a people, the Jewish people, and they would have a place, Israel, and they would live with God as their king. But by the time Matthew writes, they'd rejected that rule long ago. 
But many Jews living in the first century had missed a vital part of God's covenant with Abraham. All the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where this genealogy begins, when God first spoke to Abraham, he concluded his covenant promise with these words, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Again, in Genesis 22, we see the same thing. The Lord promises Abraham many descendants. And then he says in verse 18, And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed. While Abraham is the father of the Israelite nation and the patriarch of Judaism, God promised that he would one day have a son who would bless all peoples and all nations on earth. This is a covenant that's not narrow. It's got the whole world in view. And we see hints of that throughout this genealogy. Abraham himself started off life as a pagan. He was from Ur of the Chaldeans until the Lord brought him into his promise. And we see it specifically with the four women who are mentioned between verses 3 and 6. Uh, you remember earlier, I asked you to look out for odd details. Well, in an ancient genealogy, it was odd to include women. You might have noticed that it broke the repetition of fatherhood to have four women appear. Matthew included these women because he wanted you to take notice of them. Because they're incredibly important to the point that he's trying to make. In verse 3, see Tamar? She was a Canaanite. She was born in the land of Canaan. Rahab, who we've already mentioned in verse 5, she was also a Canaanite, born in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabitess. And in verse 6, Matthew mentions Uriah's wife. Now, now she had a name. We know her name, Bathsheba. Why would Matthew call her Uriah's wife? Well, because Uriah was a Hittite. And Matthew wants to draw our eyes to the fact that Bathsheba would have been treated and viewed as a Hittite. The Chaldeans, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Hittites, none of them were Israelites. No, in fact, they're all enemies, uh, Israel's fiercest enemies. They were foreigners. These are the nations. And yet the the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. These women were not only foreigners, they were also unclean. Moabites were absolutely forbidden from entering the temple. We've already mentioned Rahab's prostitution, but Tamar posed as a prostitute and became pregnant by Judah, her own father-in-law. And Bathsheba, she had an affair. Guess who with? King David. These aren't good Israelites. They're all foreign sinners. But Jesus' lineage represents exactly the type of people that he came to save. Jesus the Savior fulfills all God's promises 
exactly because he is the Messiah, Israel's king for all nations. Later in Matthew's gospel, we can read that that is exactly what Jesus did. He spent time with sinners, with outsiders, with women, with tax collectors, people who were outcasts in society. And when he did that, those who thought that they themselves were good and faithful were outraged. Do you know what Jesus said to them? In Matthew chapter 9, verse 12, this is what Jesus said to them. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but those who are ill. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. That is who Jesus came for. And we'll see in the next two weeks that when Jesus was born, he himself was an outsider. He was born in what appeared to be suspicious marital circumstances. There were people trying to kill him from the very moment that he was born. He was adopted by Joseph, his earthly father. He had to flee the country and live as a refugee. And when he returned, he had to move to a backwards town in the north of Israel. And we all know that northerners are outsiders, don't we? If you're watching online this morning and you're not yet a Christian and you know that you have rejected God as your king and are living your own way. If you're watching this morning and you feel like an outsider, if this morning you feel marginalized, weak, helpless, if you feel like you're waiting but you just don't know what it is that you're waiting for, then this morning God's word tells you that you are waiting for Jesus. He is the Savior who came to save people from their sins. He didn't do that when he was born, uh, but when he died on the cross. He is the Messiah who fulfills all of God's promises and is worth the wait. He is the son of David and the son of Abraham, the king for all nations. I love the carol, O come all you faithful, come let us adore him. I'm sure we'll be singing it over the next few weeks. But this morning, God wants you to know that it's the unfaithful who he calls to come and adore his son, Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Come to him this morning. Let me pray. Father God in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this list of names and we thank you for what it shows us about your son. We thank you uh, that we've seen clearly who Jesus is, uh, the saviour, uh, the promised one, uh, the king, 
and that is for all nations. Father God, I would ask that for each of us this morning, those of us who are aware of our own sin, who are aware of our own lowliness, who might be feeling lonely or isolated, who might be feeling like we don't matter, like we are marginalized, may we know that you sent Jesus for us. Not for the faithful, but you sent him for the unfaithful. Father God, we ask all of these things in the name of your Son, our King. Amen.